I want to share a real message of hope. And it's this, um, we can change all of that. And our knives and forks are an incredible place to start. There are so many problems in the world that can feel overwhelming, daunting, even unconfrontable. But when it comes to food choices, we have the opportunity to make a real, tangible, powerful difference in our own lives. And it so happens that the same choices that are good for you are also good for your planet. Welcome to the Healthy Human Revolution podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and I'm so honored to welcome Ocean Robbins. How are you today? I'm so happy to be with you, Lori. Well, I am so thankful that you took the time out of your day. I know you're extremely busy, and we're here to discuss your new book. I just will share that with everyone, The 31-Day Food Revolution. And I think I'm very familiar with your work, but there may be some of those who aren't. But could you tell us just a little bit about your dad and you and why you actually started the Food Revolution Network? Certainly. Well, my grandpa founded an ice cream company. You've probably heard of it. It was called Baskin Robbins or 31 Flavors. And my dad, John, grew up with an ice cream cone-shaped swimming pool. He was groomed from his early childhood to one day join in running the family company. But when he was in his early 20s, he was offered that chance and he, he said no. And he, he walked away from a path that was practically paved with gold and ice cream to, as we jokingly say in our family, follow his own Rocky Road. And he ended up moving with my mom to a little island off the coast of Canada where they built a one-room log cabin. They grew most of their own food and they lived very simply. They practiced yoga and meditation for several hours a day and they named their kid Ocean. That would be me. Uh, apparently they almost named me Kale. And I have to tell you, I'm glad they took this conservative route when it came to naming their son. But we did eat, did eat a lot of kale along with cabbage and broccoli and collards and um, carrots and onions and other vegetables that grew in the garden. As I got a little older, my dad ended up researching a book called Diet for a New America. It came out in 1987 and it inspired millions of people to look at their food choices as a chance to make a difference in the world. One of his readers, as fate would have it, ended up being my grandpa. Mm -hmm. Now, my dad's uncle, Bert Baskin, my grandpa's brother-in-law and business partner, had, had passed away at the age of 54 of heart disease. And my grandpa, at the age of 71, was on a similar path. They'd both eaten plenty of the family products and pretty much the standard American diet. And now my grandpa was uh, practically on death's door with serious heart problems and type 2 diabetes and weight issues. And his doctors told him he didn't have long to live unless he made some changes. Well, he did make some changes. He ended up reading my dad's book at the request of his cardiologist. And he gave up sugar. He gave up ice cream. He cut way down on his animal product consumption and he started eating a lot more whole plant foods and he got results. The kind of results that are frankly pretty predictable for people who make those kinds of changes. He got off all of his diabetes and blood pressure medications. He lost a bunch of weight he needed to lose. His golf game even improved seven strokes. So we've seen in our family that when we eat the standard American diet, we get the standard American diseases, which can lead even to the standard American death. But we've also seen that when we make a change, we can get real results that can turn everything around. And so that's kind of a little background. And enter me, uh, when I was a teenager, inspired by my dad's example and my grandpa's transformation, I founded a nonprofit called YES, and I traveled the world working with young people who were 
uh, want interested in making a change in, on the planet and basically working with young leaders in over 65 countries, people working for peace and human rights and sustainability and health and educational reform and all kinds, democracy and other kinds of issues. And as I traveled the globe and worked with leaders in um, you know, many different contexts, I saw that everybody eats and that what we're eating is having this huge, huge impact. That in the United States, we are exporting uh, agrochemical companies and pesticides and ways of growing food, ways of housing animals and factory farms that are spreading around the globe. We're also exporting ways of manufacturing and marketing food with KFC and McDonald's and Baskin Robbins spreading around the globe. And as this is happening, waistlines are expanding, hospitals are filling up, and people are getting sick and dying from diseases that were unheard of a generation or two ago. Mm -hmm. And so eventually after 20 years directing, yes, I realized I wanted to focus on food directly. So I launched Food Revolution Network with my dad and colleague, John Robbins in 2012. And we're standing for healthy, ethical and sustainable food for everyone who eats. That's awesome. And how does someone join the Food Revolution Network? Well, you join the food revolution, which is the thing I'm really excited about. I mean, we have an organization and I've created a book to put it all out and, and mm -hmm. share it all with everybody. It's called 31 Day Food Revolution. And that's really the biggest thing I want to invite you to do is grab yourself a copy, share it with everyone you love, because it captures decades of life work and puts them into a simple, easily accessible format to help you get results. Um, but you join the revolution every time you choose real food over processed junk, every time you go more plant-based, every time you step away from donuts and instead eat kale, every time you choose uh, to spread the word to friends and loved ones. Because every dollar we spend and every bite we take is actually a vote. You're voting for the health you want and you're also voting for the world you want. So I say make it a conscious vote because when you bring your life and your choices into integrity with your values, with your conscience, with who you really are and what you really want to stand for, then your life takes on a potency and a vibrancy and a dynamism that's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. You know, in my teen years, I did martial arts and there's this concept of being centered. And when you're not centered, you get pushed and you fall over. But when you're centered, you can really absorb a lot more impact. And I think life brings us all plenty of blows in life. And when we are centered, when we're congruent, when we're landed in our own integrity, then we respond to those with creativity, with genius, with brilliance. And so I want to help you bring your food choices into that kind of alignment. That was actually really interesting because that exact phrase you have mentioned in the latter part of your book, and I was going to ask you about that and exactly how you kind of perfectly align, you just guide how everything aligns, your physical, your mental, your spiritual, your emotional self. And I've certainly found that when I as moved my practice, my family medicine practice towards nutrition, and I focus on that foundation, lots of things have happened. And as I've met other physicians who've also, you know, used lifestyle medicine, it's a different um, friendship. It's a different relationship that you have with people and your patients because you see them much more differently. And I agree, my whole family, I also have three, I have three grown children now. And so they're also um, really fun to see what they're doing with their lives. But I think that's fantastic. But I do want to ask you about the book. So you have four sections. So you have detoxify, nourish, gather, and transform. Yeah. How did you decide to put these in these categories and what do those mean exactly? I mean, you do some explanation in the book, but I'd like for those, for you to share that, please. Absolutely. So, um, detoxify is part one and that's where we focus on how you get rid of the bad stuff how you clear away the not just foods although we focus a lot on foods but also top polluted water 
pans you might be cooking with, uh, kitchen utensils, food storage items that might be making you sick without even realizing it. So we look at the research and the data and how you can clear out your life and create habits that are going to support you so you learn to love foods that love you back. Mm-hmm. And then part two is nourish. And that's where we look at how you can really enjoy this, the real superfoods. And by that, I don't mean $30 a pound Himalayan goji berries. I mean uh, the superfoods that are super precisely because they can do the most good for the most people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then in part uh, three, we look at gather, how you can really build your tribe, how you can gather your healthy eating community so that your friends, your loved ones can go along for the ride with you, so that you don't have to be alone or isolated. Because a lot of people I know feel a sense of fundamental loneliness in their lives in the modern world. And I wanna help bridge that gap for you so you can have positive, nourishing social connections every age and stage of life. And then part four is transform. And that's where we look at how you can use food choices as an opportunity to stand for a healthier world because your food impacts the ability for some people to eat or not eat at all. It impacts the way animals live and die. It impacts the way our climate will be for future generations. It impacts our soil and our water for future generations. And I wanna show you how you can contribute to healthier school lunches, to to nutrition being taught in medical school, to healthier food policy so that the poorest among us have access to real healthy food so that we're not essentially condemning, condemning the poor to nutritional disasters. And I show how we can make healthy food affordable and accessible, how food can be an opportunity to take a stand for social justice on the planet. And the spoiler alert is it's a heck of a lot easier to change the world than you probably ever imagined. Right, absolutely. So you have a really interesting way when you present the book. So you have your your family stories that you like to share about your twin boys and your wife, and then you bring in other stories of readers and participants in the food revolution, but then you also give resources and additional information. There's recipes. It's a pretty broad book, but it's cohesive and easy to read. And you have it in 31 day kind of a format or 31 chapters. What was the biggest challenge in writing this? Because I mean, honestly, when I look out at how you organize, like, wow, this is a lot of information to be able to consolidate into one readable format. Well, I wanted to be scientifically grounded. So 31 Day Food Revolution contains, you know, over 500 citations to medical literature, but it also is sourcing ultimately more than 10,000 studies published in peer-reviewed journals, which Mm -hmm. ultimately are all telling us the same thing, (laughs) which is that we need to eat more whole plant foods if we want to be healthy and thrive. I mean, that's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, I wanted to put it all together in a credible format. So that's comprehensive. And I also wanted to make it simple. And one of the challenges was how to really make it accessible because you know what? Most people I know don't really struggle with knowing what to do so much as they struggle with doing what they know. Mm-hmm. A lot of us know that we need to eat more vegetables. Most people know they should eat less sugar and processed junk, but that doesn't really change behavior. And we still have an obesity epidemic and a diabetes crisis that are spiraling out of control. And so at the end of the day, what we need to do is to put what we're learning into action. And that's why every single chapter on there's 31 chapters ends with simple action steps you can take to get results, to apply what you're learning and make it happen in your life. And some people may wonder why 31? Is it because there's some mystic formula for a 31-day journey? Well, two reasons. Yes, it's, it, there's a lot of research showing that it takes about a month for a new habit to set in. But the other reason is, quite frankly, my grandpa 
brought the world 31 flavors of ice cream. <laughs> and I'm saying that 31 Steps to Health can bring you more satisfaction, more pleasure, more joy, even than 31 flavors of ice cream. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> and I do, you had mentioned the action steps. You actually have three. So you give everyone three options. It's almost like yeah. you're the beginner, the intermediate, and then let's really get things done step. And so when you were deciding how to set up those questions or those action steps, did anyone else give you input? Was there, because I know you speak about your boys quite a bit. Did they also? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, to some extent, action steps are based on my own life experience, but also Food Revolution Network has over 500,000 members. Nice. And so we've done a lot of outreach over the years. Um, and I actually engaged out of all our members, I invited people to become part of my book support team. And so I asked them a lot of questions and interviewed them and asked for stories from people hmm. about how they had lived the food revolution in their life. What obstacles have you faced? How have you overcome them? And so a lot of the actions came from, from our members. And there's um, you know, dozens of stories told throughout the book of real people who really done this and really gotten results. I didn't want some ivory tower you know, prescription that's not rooted in reality. I wanted to base it in real life. So all of the tips and tools and suggestions have actually been tried and successfully implemented in the real world. So when I talk about how to, how to ask questions at a restaurant so that you get food that's in keeping with your values, or when I talk about how to find a good restaurant or what apps to use, or when I talk about how to navigate tricky social situations at parties with people who might not be eating like you do, uh, how to deal with Super Bowl Sunday, you know, or different events, birthdays, whatever, um, when people are eating differently than you and you don't wanna be the Grinch on Christmas, but you also <laughs> wanna connect with people, I show how, and it's all based in real world examples and experiences. And you're right, actually, every single chapter ends with not just one action, but three action options. And the reason I did that, and this is one of the challenges, um, needles I wanted to thread in this book, is I'm writing to a broad audience. You know, I'm writing to, you know, Aunt Sally, who's, you know, eating bacon and eggs for breakfast and is thinking about whether she should fry them in a little bit less fat. And I'm writing to, you know, a, a hardcore long-term raw vegan who is mm -hmm. wanting to finesse their turmeric uh, method, methods of taking turmeric in or make sure that they're digesting their chia seeds optimally. And <laughs> I want to help everybody to get the benefit of moving in a healthy direction so right. that we can really thrive. And so the goal was to help people start where they are and move forward in a constructive way. And the three actions are typically in order of difficulty. So if you're kind of newer on the path, it might be a simpler thing like, you know, find the worst offender in your kitchen and get rid of it. And if it's your farther along the path, it might be a bigger step, you know, like a commit to buying only what's on your shopping list for the next week, you know, mm -hmm. and not doing any impulse purchasing whatsoever. Or there's all kinds of different steps. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is I want to help everybody to feel welcomed, embraced, loved and supported for who you are, and then supported in moving forward in positive and constructive ways. And that's really good. I hear you say the word thrive often in our in your conversation here what does that actually mean to you because i don't think people quite understand when i speak to patients i'm like you know there's more to being me just giving you medicines and making your numbers normal you still feel bad you make your numbers look good but you're not well and right. we talk about thriving so can you describe what thriving means to you um yeah sure absolutely well thriving to me is um not just adding years to your life, but adding life to your years. Mm -hmm. It's about having bounce in your step and vibrancy in your body. It's about not having a big sag of energy in the afternoon. It's about waking up glad to be alive. 
It's mm-hmm. about loving who you are. It's about having a life worth living. Thriving to me is not just surviving, but it's actually embodying the beauty, the joy, the vitality that I think we all deserve. You know, I don't think humans were just put on this earth to cope and mope and groan and somehow make it through another day. I think we deserve, you deserve to actually love your life, to Mm -hmm. actually love who you are, to celebrate every day um, with passion and purpose and clarity and to give something to the world around us. And so uh, really that's what it's all about to me. I'm not interested in, in prolonging misery. I mean, I remember all of my grandparents when they were really at the end, they were kind of like part of them was kind of waiting for it to be over, you know, and certainly their friends were in that state. And um, I I want to love and live fully and inhabit my days uh, to Mm -hmm. the end. And I want to help everyone else do that as well. So if you're somebody who wants to live to the fullest, then remember, you know, pain pushes and vision pulls. So for a lot of us, we're pushed by fear of disease, but some of us are also pulled by vision of what's possible. And that's mm-hmm. what, I, what I want to invite for you is to also be motivated by, you know, what your dreams are. Maybe you want to dance at your grandchildren's wedding. Maybe you want to have the energy to play with your great grandkids. Yeah, I, I, I heard about, um, you know, one woman in Okinawa, in Japan, who, you know, she was a hundred something years old and she was holding her great, 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 great granddaughter. And okay. she was asked what that felt like. And she said, it's like looking into heaven. <laughs> you know, that's absolutely, um, when my oldest was born, she's almost 25 and we had five generations. And so it was really fun to see yeah. the generational, um, thrive. when I see thrive, I think of kids, right? We forget as we get older and we're burdened with everyday, you know, tasks and responsibilities, but kids just play and enjoy and love and they thrive. And I think we just need to remember kind of watching our kids grow or remembering when we're children what that was like. Absolutely. But I really like how you mentioned hope, right? Because honestly, when I started using nutrition in my practice and have things have changed and gone on um, seven years ago, I was in Colorado. That was the one thing I think that was really different. And I, you know, doctors don't talk about that. I don't think we as a society say there is hope that you can get well because we've become so accustomed to being ill and it's a normalized thing to take medication and you're abnormal when you don't. And um, I think that's yeah. really important, but people don't understand that they have power. So what is the one thing that you think is the greatest lover of change that one person can take either in their own health or if they have some other, you know, love of animals or the environment? Like, what is that one piece that you think is most important? Well, the one thing is look at where you are and look at where you want to be. Mm-hmm. And if there's any kind of gap, then see how you can take steps to bridge it, you know, um, and, and hold yourself with compassion in that process. Because you know what, we live in a toxic food culture. So all around us, it's been normalized to eat food that is, you know, polluting the planet, that's, that's fueling disease, and it's, that's connected to a lot of suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I wanna say is that just because it's normal and just because it's normal to feel like crap, doesn't mean it has to be something else is entirely possible and so with that sense of possibility comes action you know cancer heart disease diabetes they don't care a heck of a lot how many podcasts you watch how many books you read how many seminars you attend but they do care what you eat and how you live and so the key thing is to create the conditions for success and realize 
however bad your habits might be, and I don't say bad as a judgmental thing. I mean, bad, like just not helpful to what you want, you know, mm-hmm. however unhelpful they might be, uh, there can always be room to improve them. You know, water runs into gullies and eventually they turn into creeks and riverbeds. And it all starts with just a little groove in the ground. And when it rains, it goes into that groove and makes it deeper. And habits are a little bit like that. So the good, the bad news is you might have some unhealthy habits. Most of us do. Even the healthiest eaters probably do. Uh, but the good news is that you can make steps to improve it. By the, and the best time, by the way, to, um, to carve out a new gully or to repair a roof for that matter is when the sun's shining. So when you have some energy, when you have some inspiration, use it to get a new habit in place and then it'll be there for you in, in the cloudy, stormy times that inevitably come in your life. So that when you're tired, when you're down, when you're worn out at the end of a long day or a long week, you've got healthy food in the fridge. You've got healthy food in the freezer. You've got recipes you know and like. You've got a plan in place. You've got sharp lines and boundaries in place. So you're not going to surround yourself with temptation for things that in a weak moment are going to suck you down. Absolutely. So you have met, have you been to every country in the world? You say you've traveled no, all No, 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 no. <laughs> but I've worked personally with leaders in 65 countries and wow. I've seen a lot. Absolutely. Because um, I mean, I was in the Air Force, so I've traveled somewhat extensive in places I don't want to go back but as far as um but it is fascinating and you meet all sorts of people and you see how they live and as a physician being in those places offering you know help and and providing that it's it's really fascinating that you're right we all eat and we all hold certain yeah. foods as valued and and special but um I'm curious of all of these years and all of these people that you've met and these amazing uh, experiences you've had. What is the one of the most inspirational changes that you've seen someone happen, or something that just really moved you? Oh my goodness! Um, <laughs> I mean, working with indigenous leaders in the Brazilian Amazon, Laura and Tashka Yawanawa, and hearing about their struggle to keep their culture alive. You know, it goes back to tens of thousands of years. They live way out in the remote rainforest and they had to leave their rainforest home. He did and his wife and family so they could interact with the modern world so that they could fight for their, their community's survival. Hmm. They would travel back and forth, but they had to spend a lot of time away from their precious homes to, uh, to be in the cities so they could be connected to the internet, so they could lobby and organize. Because if they did nothing, then guess what? Their rainforest homeland will be destroyed. The animals, the plants, everything will be destroyed for cattle ranching. And it's all encroaching and they had to fight to get their land rights secured and then to protect them. And they actually, we helped them raise money so they could buy an airplane so they could fly over the area to make sure that their territorial territorial rights weren't being infringed upon because just because it says that it's the indigenous people's land and no one can go there doesn't mean that desperate villagers won't bring cattle in. And Mm -hmm. uh, as Americans or Europeans or or Canadians, we have our, uh, for those of us who are from those places, we, in a sense, have our hands on the chainsaw if we're eating livestock that are coming from that location. And you know what? When they're not creating grazing land for cattle, they're often creating farmland to grow soy and corn. Guess where those soy and corn end up? In the bellies of livestock. Most of the world's corn and soy are going to livestock, and we're chopping down our rainforests for that. If you want to help save the planet and, and, and save our climate for future generations, this is a critical intervention point because... Tropical rainforests are the lungs of the planet, and they're also carbon sinks 
And when they get cut down, then all that biomass goes into the atmosphere and fuels global warming on a big scale. It's often even being burned. We're not even using the wood. So this is something we can do something about. And eating lower on the food chain is one of the most powerful steps you can take. And seeing Laura and Tashka's struggle really made that hit home for me. And looking at the other end of the world, I saw another indigenous community in the Arctic, mm -hmm. uh, in Arctic village, Alaska, the Nitsai tribe. They call themselves the caribou people. They depend on the caribou migration as well as salmon for their, for their livelihood. They, they are starting to learn about vegetables, but they don't have a lot in their history. They don't have the longest life expectancy, but their culture is beautiful and it deserves to, to be protected and preserved. And they're now threatened by, um, by the, the climate change that is changing caribou migration, caribou migration patterns and less caribou are coming through because they're struggling to survive because everything's getting thrown off kilter. And so their, their survival is also threatened. They're in the Arctic Circle and mm. it's partly oil drilling and it's partly climate change. And so uh, again, too, I look at the modern American diet and I say, oh my gosh, you know, when we fuel climate change because cows impact our climate more than cars do um, by eating the standard American diet, we are directly impacting the Gwich'in survival. And something about interacting with these indigenous peoples and feeling their, the beauty of their cultures and the depth and wisdom of their spirituality and how sustainable they've been for tens of thousands of years. And I didn't, I don't want to mess that up, mm -hmm. you know? And so again, it helped me land back in the importance of what we're doing. Yeah, I agree. When you take on, you, you mentioned several different projects and talking to CEOs of Coca-Cola and different corporations and creating some type of change when you spoke about the Washington uh, landmark change where they were wanting to, you know, talk about GMO and labeling GMO and how we lost. I live in Washington state. So I can take that uh, personally. When do you decide to take on a project? Because some of these, like you, you know, these are multi-year projects that you have talked about. What is, how do you decide that that meets or what criteria is someone looking for? Or are you looking for to, before you would take something on like that? Oh, well, I mean, Food Revolution Network looks at where our members are passionate and where we think we can make an impact. And, you know, we've taken on petitions and campaigns around a number of topics where we have big picture goals. And the biggest thing we want to do is help everybody become a food revolutionary every day. Mm -hmm. And so it's not so much about us as about how we mobilize people, everybody to be a part of the solution. And so a lot of that comes down to everyday lifestyle choices and habits. Um, but we also are working, for example, to get nutrition taught in medical school. We're launching a campaign calling on the National Board of Medical Examiners to include uh, nutrition in the uh, exam questions that med school graduates have to pass in order to um, get their license as physicians in the United States. Right now, virtually no questions on those exams pertain to nutrition, and we think that should change because we've got a, um, you know, a health industry that acts like food didn't matter. The average physician gets less than 19 hours of nutritional education. And this is partly because <laughs> medical schools teach to the test. I think it's also because there's no reimbursement in healthy eating and prevention. There's right. no, um, there's no real profit in it. I, I truly believe that if broccoli was uh, funded like chemotherapy is and reimbursed like chemotherapy is, we would see more broccoli and, and probably less cancer deaths. No, I agree. So I can speak, um, very well to the medical component of that my daughter is a second year medical student and um 
seeing, you know, she's learning, like you said, she's studying for her step one, which is the first step. There's three steps to become, you know, the USMLE. And you're right. We do get very little um, nutritional guidance in treating, but there is a younger population of medical students and, you know, some residents that are actually taking note. And what I found is that even as an older physician, as someone with more experience, my patients are really Mm. A lot of doctors will say they don't want to, there are no more patients don't want to listen. But I have found the complete opposite because when you speak to a patient about hope and getting better by changing some few things in their lifestyle and explained in a way that makes it doable for them, like you said, these action steps, they really do take hold of it and it inspires them. And then they feel like you have a friend, a guide through this, you know, a personal guide. And I yep. found that one because there's a lot of physician burnout. Uh, physicians have one of the highest rates of suicide of any profession, and <clears throat> which is um, sad. And you know, I've personally been affected by that, and had you know known folks and who done that, and families that were left behind. And when you see that, and it really reignites someone, so you don't have that burnout and that passion just really returns. And that's what I love about the yep. Plantrition Project with Dr. Scott Stoll. He's teaching. Um, you know, physicians that, and Dr. Clapper, I know his initiative also to teach medical students and he's such a, a visionary and, and just a lovely person as well. So I applaud any efforts that you can get there because I think that's going to be a lot of social, you know, a lot of social um, interaction. We have 2000 panel and one family practice. Imagine if you touch 2000 lives and where those go, that's really fun. Absolutely. So. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess because you speak so, so much about your children, I understand because I, you know, my children are my, my, and my husband, I love my husband, but you know, we both love our children so much. Yeah. Where, what is your greatest concern as their future? I know I see what I'm worried about, but for you, because you've been around the world and you understand the history and we're, are we learning from it? Are we going to make the same mistakes? Are we moving in the same direction? What is your greatest concern for your kids' history, you know, future in 20 to 30 years? Mm. Oh my gosh, there's so many levels to that. I mean, I'll speak personally for a second. My kids are on the autism spectrum. We have identical twins. They were born in 2001. They were born nine weeks early. They are awesomely autistic. They're beautiful. They they have to work harder than a lot of folks do to get the same results, um, <clears throat> but they put their hearts into it. They're so sweet and so kind. And you know, we were told by experts early on that they were incapable of empathy and they have so much empathy for everybody's feelings. And I mean, they're, they're, they still like to snuggle and I just mm-hmm. I feel so blessed. They just turned 18 recently. Oh. Um, so, but I, I, given that they have special needs as well as special gifts, I have, concerns for them personally, for their well-being and future, obviously, and and them having the, the, I think my core goal for them, maybe every parent would agree, is I want them to have their basic needs met. I want them to have love in their lives. I want them to feel that they matter and contribute meaning, meaningfully to the lives of other people. Mm-hmm. And I think those are, if they have that, then I'm pretty at peace for them personally, you know? Right. Um, I think that, um, in terms of the world that they're growing into, I mean, it certainly frightens me when I look at the, that we spend 19% of our gross domestic product on what we call medical care. It's really disease symptom management in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that's expected to skyrocket. You know, costs of Medicare are expected to keep going up dramatically, especially with Alzheimer's. The costs of treating Alzheimer's are expected to double in the next generation. I don't know how we're going to pay for all that as a society. 
uh, medical costs are already the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States. We have so many fights within political leaders about who the heck's going to pay for out-of-control medical costs, but nobody is really addressing why we're spending so much. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and yet it seems like everyone's fighting over who's going to divvy up the pie in what way with, you know, with all of the cure, and we're not focusing on the prevention that could end all of that you need to happen in the first place. So right. that's where I'm passionate and I get concerned. And of course, there's plenty of issues with climate change and destabilization. And, you know, th th there are serious concerns. I know a lot about topsoil and water supplies, and I'm very concerned about whether future generations are going to be able to grow food. I think that we risk billions of people being environmental refugees uh, later this century. Um, and I think that we risk, you know, a large share of our cropland being un able to grow food because there either isn't water for it because we've drained our aquifers or because of the topsoil is eroded. So these are big concerns that kind of burn in my heart, honestly. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I want to share a real message of hope. And it's this, um, we can change all of that. And our knives and forks are an incredible place to start. There are so many problems in the world that can feel overwhelming, daunting, even unconfrontable. But when it comes to food choices, we have the opportunity to make a real, tangible, powerful difference in our own lives. And it so happens that the same choices that are good for you are also good for your planet. So I love that I'm getting to contribute to a healthier world for my kids every day, that I'm getting to share that with them, that they know that they can be a part of the solution. I think the, the, uh, that apathy is the thief of destiny. And the mm -hmm. best antidote to apathy starts with hope. And then it turns into, then it's hope put into action. Right. So I know that every time any of us stands for hope in action by making choices that are aligned with our values, we actually do so not just for us, but for all of humanity and certainly for everyone in our families and communities, because we show them with a living example that it's possible to do something that matters and to be part of the solution. So, I mean, that's a beautiful statement in the way you describe it. So it's really... Um, providing the message of hope and then giving tools and a network for others to join arms and so they can move forward. So what is your daily inspiration? So if you have someone, I know there are days that, you know, you're still doing your day's work. And <laughs> so there must be days that you're like, you know what, I'm tired. <laughs> so how do you, what is it in your mind? What do you, what do you draw from to keep going and having the inspiration to keep going? Because I know there are days that I just rather just roll back over and go to sleep, but I don't. But what do you do? Let me tell you a story about Kate McGowie Smith. She's from Calgary, Alberta. Oh, I think and that's a good story. You know, Kate? Yeah. So <laughs> she was uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, she was 70 pounds overweight. She had serious type 2 diabetes. She wound up um, because of a multiple system failure. She was hooked up to an oxygen tank, a 20 pound oxygen tank in order to breathe. She couldn't walk, she was in a wheelchair and she was blind. Mm -hmm. And when she went to doctors, they said, you know, have a good will basically because there's not much hope. And she was on the edge of, of kidney failure and she was gonna need dialysis. And she, they told her her only hope might be a lung transplant. That was just to breathe. That wasn't gonna help her walk or see. She learned about healthy food choices. She went whole foods plant-based. She took it to an extreme. She snacked on steamed greens with seasoned vinegar six times a day. She gave up all sugar, all processed foods. She, her life was on the line. She taught herself to cook while blind, while in a wheelchair and while hooked up to a 20 pound oxygen tank. And 
she got results slowly and steadily. And today she is walking, she's mobile, she can run around, she's out of her wheelchair, she can see, and she doesn't need an oxygen hookup anymore. She can breathe. She hasn't even needed dialysis because even though she only has 12% kidney function, her kidneys are doing amazingly well with that 12%. And she's not burdening them with excessive toxins. And she's lost 70 pounds. And she's an example to her family. She, she told me, you know, when my time does come, and I hope it won't be for a long while, I will know, I, I think about what I'm leaving for my kids. And I'll know that I may not leave them a lot of money, but I'll leave them something much better, which is the gift of health and knowing what's possible. One of her sons has lost 60 pounds himself. Her husband lost 50 pounds. Her whole family has been uplifted by her example. And now she's a health educator. And when I feel down, when I feel tired, when I feel burned out or just want to complain and mope, I think about Kate, you know, in a wheelchair, unable to see, teaching yourself to cook and, you know, snacking on green six times a day. And I think, oh my gosh, <laughs> there's hope for all of us. We can do this. We can get these results. How wonderful. Hello. Looks like you had some... Oh, are you there? There we go. All right. So I just wanted to say thank you so much. I know we're in, you're in a hurry and you have limited time here. Um, but just out of curiosity, because I know some people ask, we talk a lot about plant-based and I did ask beforehand. So yeah. I'm throwing this on you, but you had mentioned in the book that you have chosen to consume on occasion, um, eggs and fish. And would you mind just explaining that for others, why you've chosen to incorporate that into your diet, please? Absolutely. Well, first of all, let me say that I have a lot of respect for every human being's sovereignty to make the choices that make the most sense to them. And depending on your ethics, your ecosystem, your health history, your, your stage of life, mm -hmm. metabolism, and many other factors, there's no one size fits all solution for everybody. I think the overwhelming data is absolutely clear. We need to move in a plant-based direction. The blue zones, which Dan Buettner has studied, are the places in the world where people have traditionally lived the longest and healthiest lives. He identified six of them for National Geographic. And uh, in all of those cases, they ate between zero and 10% of their calories from animal products. And they, um, the average American gets 34%. Mm -hmm. So whether the optimal diet from a health perspective for human beings is zero or five or 10% is a matter of some debate, but mm -hmm. I think that getting a lot less than 34% is pretty solidly proven for almost everybody <laughs> to be optimal. Mm -hmm. Now, from an environmental standpoint, the less the better because animal products are higher on the food chain. But um, that said, there are some ways that animal products on a limited basis can be sustainable environmentally. Mm -hmm. For example, chickens that run around outside and and dig up the soil and you know poop on the ground and you know that that can make some sense. There are some ecosystems that can't grow they can't grow crops, but they can grow grass and that well managed. I mean, buffalo there were there were millions of buffalo on the prairies before before the Westerners settled in uh, in North America, and that was pretty sustainable. So animals can coexist with nature in a wonderful way, uh, in their right way, with a lot of room to roam. Um, and from an ethical standpoint, I have a complete problem with factory farms, and I would rather not kill an animal ever if I don't you know, need to to live. Um, but uh, I look at also how I can do the greatest good for the most people. And mm -hmm. my perspective is that there are some people, not all people, who do better from a purely health standpoint with certain nutrients in their diet, B12 and omega-3 fatty acids, 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, um, vitamin D3 in particular, and a lot of vegans aren't getting a lot of those particular nutrients in full, full volume. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of nutrients, by the way, that vegans get way more of <laughs> that are like fiber and folate and tons of things. But right. I'm talking about these other things right now. And especially with omega-3 fatty acids, which are really important for brain health and heart health, you can get them from algae supplements. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is some controversy about whether that's the optimal form. And I like to get my nutrients from food as much as possible. So DHA and EPA are two of the omega-3 fatty acids. And those, from a purely health perspective, there may be certain wild fish that eating them in modest amounts may be a benefit provided they're low mercury. And I'm talking about wild salmon, sardines, herring, etc. I'm not advocating if that's against your values and morals that you go out and eat fish. I'm saying that for a lot of standard Americans, replacing beef with fish is going to lead them in a positive health direction. For my Personally, I choose to include modest amounts of wild fish in my diet. I feel that it helps connect me to the masses of humanity and not feel like I'm too separate. And it helps me feel like kinship with everybody. And uh, I always feel concerned about the well-being of the fish and the oceans. Um, But I do believe that it's healthy for me personally. And pasture-raised eggs, I don't have a big ethical problem with it when the chickens have 100 square feet to roam around and they run around outside and cluck and they lay their eggs. I know they'll turn into chicken soup at the end when they stop laying, most likely. I feel sad about that. I don't want to participate in that part, but it's not a big thing for me. I don't think eggs have massive nutritional value for humans, but I don't have a major ethical problem with it. Same with honey when it's well-managed. So I'm not a strict ethical vegan, but I believe deeply in kinship with all life and respect for our bodies and our planet. Very well said. And thank you so much for explaining that because I I knew that question would come up and I I figured you should share that information. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your experience. And I just, I just really want to say, um, there's a huge gratitude for the work that you and your dad are doing. We so appreciate everything that you're doing. And again, thank you for your time and sharing your, your book with us. Again, I will put the link of course, um, not that you need my my link but i will put it here the 31 day food revolution 31 day food revolution i wrote it for you grab your copy today share it with everyone you love and put it into action absolutely and i think these are very actionable steps and um so thank you again absolutely thank you